then you can be seated. Good morning, I'm Susie Bates. I'm the Generations Pastor here at Pulpit Rock. That means I have the great privilege of leading the teams that run our kids' ministry and our student ministry. Together, we are the Generations team, and we want to love and lead the next generation well. Parents, we want to partner with you and cheer you on as you love and lead your kids. Um, we are for the families of Pulpit Rock. If you've been here the last two weeks, you'll know that we're in a series in Exodus, and we've been saying that by reading these stories about people journeying from slavery to home, that we tend to find our own story in the text. I know I've found that to be true. I do want to remind you that the truest part of each of our stories is that we were created in the image of God, we are deeply loved by him, and he has a great purpose for our lives. I've been following um, this part of Moses' story in recent weeks, and I couldn't help but see glimpses of my own story. And I'll be honest, um, there's a part of my story that I've been really excited to share with you all specifically, and I'm going to get a chance to do that today. Um, so I'm excited to take us on a little collective journey of our own this morning, and my prayer is that you'll find yourself somewhere in these stories as well. Uh, me being up to preach on this Sunday has been on my calendar for a while now. I've been looking forward to it. I've been eyeing it as it's drawn nearer. And uh, there's actually another event coming up for me um, in two weeks that's, that I've been watching get closer and closer on my calendar as well. And that is my high school 20-year reunion. I'm really excited about that. I think I am. I'm, I don't really know, actually. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back for it, though, I think. Um, I am from a small town uh, in Ada, Oklahoma. That's where I went to high school. I doubt you've heard of that town, um, but I, I do think you've probably heard of Blake Shelton. Yes? Okay, Blake Shelton is also from my small rural Oklahoma town. Um, we went to high school, the same high school. He's a few years older than me. Uh, I didn't know him really well, but it's a small town, so you kind of know everybody. And I remember distinctly what Blake looked like. He had a huge mullet um, that he rocked. It was like the 90s, so he got away with that. He was always in cowboy boots and Wranglers and a really loud cowboy shirt. Um, but Blake's super cool. Last fall, he recorded a selfie video of himself uh, wishing the Ada High football team good luck in the state tournament. And he sent it to the coach, um, and they played it for all the players. I just love that Blake has not forgotten his roots. Um, in fact, I want to show you one of his recent album covers. This is the Great Water Tower in Ada, and it made the front of a cover of one of his albums. I think that's pretty cool. My house that I grew up in actually was like a block away from this water tower. Um, I would walk by it every day on my way to middle school, and my friends and I, I'll be honest, we spent many summer nights actually climbing the water tower, because in rural Oklahoma, that's just what you do for fun. Um, don't get me wrong, there's lots of fun things to do in rural Oklahoma. You could go cow tipping, throw stuff off the bridge. Anyway, my friends and I had a good time. I, I also brought a picture of my friends and I, and this is a great summation of our childhood together. <laughs> That's Joni on the left and Lauren on the right. I'm in the middle. That's our middle school behind us. And we were actually at a youth group thing, like in small town Oklahoma back then, like the church did stuff at the school. Like we were always at youth group together. Uh, we were always just living life to its fullest. Um, we laughed a lot growing up. 
And we talked about God a lot as um, we just traveled on our faith journeys together. Tragically, Lauren's life ended way too soon three years ago. And the really horrific circumstances of her death, they landed squarely on the shoulders of my friend Joni. Joni is an absolute hero of mine. And the anniversary of our friend Lauren's death actually falls the same weekend of this high school reunion. And though Joni and I really aren't that interested in the reunion side of it, um, we are very sentimental about our friendship now that Lauren's gone. And so we just felt like it's going to be right for us to get together um, with a few of our other high school friends and just remember Lauren. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Despite all this background and talk of roots, I can honestly say that when I graduated from Ada High School 20 years ago, I was ready to leave. Like, I knew I would carry those meaningful friendships with me, but I was ready to get out of there. Isn't it funny how we can be so quick to want to cut ties with our place of origin, but at the same time, how we can really just draw a lot of meaning from staying connected to that same origin? I can recall leaving Ada to go to college. I was so anxious to make my life my own. I wanted to make my own path, cut all my ties. I was a pastor's kid in this small town. Um, I was kind of tired of everyone feeling like they knew me. I don't think I really even knew myself at that time in my life. I was just ready to go. And I didn't realize it then. I think religion had begun to take its toll on me. I was tired of religion. Looking back, it's clear to me this was me feeling for the first time, this place no longer feels like home to me. We've been talking about that feeling in this series. It was my exodus, and I was ready to leave it all behind for something new. I was kind of even hoping it could all just kind of wash away in the water. I could walk away from who I'd always been and become someone completely new. But then three years ago, when my childhood and lifelong friend, Lauren, tragically took her life at age 34, I realized maybe I had my exodus in an external sense back then when I left home 20 years ago. And maybe water did wash some of that away. But this loss, like, it just immediately took me right back home. And it turned out I have to confront more than just my external realities to truly be free. I have to confront my internal realities as well. I have to take a good and honest look at what's still in my blood. True freedom is long, hard work, and it often only comes from the inside out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn to verse 11 if you'd like. We've opened this series the last two weeks with a look at how the story of Exodus occurs on two levels for the people of God. It occurs at that external level where God brings his people out of Egypt to find a home in the promised land, and it occurs at that internal level where God has to get Egypt out of his people so they can find their home in him. I see ways my story has unfolded on both of those levels, and I think you'll see how you've been there yourself too, if you'll be willing to look for it. These two perspectives are hopelessly bound to one another. To truly be free, we have to be liberated physically, but then we find that we also must begin the hard work of confronting what's inside us. I've experienced that in my life, and we'll see this exact thing take place in Moses' life today. What we'll see in the text is a long journey of Moses reconciling that outward physical journey to freedom with the internal, emotional journey to freedom. 
as I've been reflecting on this part of Moses' story, I just keep thinking what an identity crisis he must have been having. Moses is a Hebrew. He's one of God's people. But as we learned last week, in an effort to save his life, his mother places her Hebrew baby in a basket and sends him out of slavery and down the river straight into the Egyptian pharaoh's house. He's raised in that home. He definitely has Egypt in his heart at this point, but he had Israel in his blood. What we'll see in the text today is that the truest thing about Moses did not get washed out in the water of the river that day. Even though he is raised in an Egyptian household, he is not able to forget who he is. God doesn't let him. It's in his blood. John Mayer has this beautiful song called In the Blood. I love music. I'm always listening to music. A friend of mine said, I have this song I want to play for you. I'm going to play it, but I promise you, after you listen to it, you're going to want me to play it again. I was like, well, we'll see. Listen to the song, and I was like, yes, you have to play that again. That was so beautiful. The lyrics just captivated me. I've been playing this song nonstop since she showed it to me. I play it in my office while I'm working. I play it on my guitar at home. I'm showing it to my friends. A few weeks ago, Cindy and I were headed somewhere, and I said, Cindy, I, while we're in the car today, I've got to play you this song. I think there's a message here. I played it for her. We're driving down I-25. We had ourselves some church, didn't we, Cindy? It's good stuff. I want to read you guys some of the lyrics. How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water, or is it always in the blood? How much of my father am I destined to become? Will I dim the light inside me just to satisfy someone? Could I change it if I wanted? Could I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water, or is it always in the blood? I think we can all relate to that tension, can't we? I know I can. There's so many things about the camp I come from. I try hard to let the water wash away. Religion's one of those things. Shame, fear. There are also a lot of things about who God made me to be that I know are in my blood. I know God gave me a special sensitivity to those pushed out to the margins. I know I have this built-in sense of wonder and trust that I can draw from. I know I am made to be on a team. Are there things we should let be washed out in the water that we find ourselves fighting that process? Are there things that we should know are in our blood but we have a hard time believing it? I think Moses could relate to that tension too. He had to pretty consistently ask, who am I? What about my past has shaped me into this person I am today? Was it my Egyptian upbringing? Should I be loyal to that? Would the Israelites accept me as one of their own? Would they accept me as their leader? What is God asking me to do with all this? What's in my blood and what has been washed away? As I've been studying Exodus in recent weeks, I couldn't help but notice how many times when God is speaking to Moses, he refers to himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And I found a lot of comfort in that because I think God does it to remind Moses of who he is, of what's in his blood, of where he comes from and who has been the one actually doing the writing of his story all along. God could have just said, I'm your God, or don't question me, you know. But he goes on to say, I'm the God of your father, and the God of his father, and the God of his father. To me, it's just reminiscent of God being Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. I am. There's just something very grounding in that to me, and it brings me comfort. I believe it to be true. I love the quote we shared a few weeks ago where the Jewish rabbi said, the Bible is not just true because it happened. It's true because it happens. This is happening. Just like with Moses, God is trying to remind us of who we are. God is trying to remind me of who I am. God is trying to remind you of who you are. We are image bearers, created by God and deeply loved by him. Does that wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? We pick up Moses' story this week in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, where we see him again for the first time since Pharaoh's daughter had taken him in as a baby. So this is years later. He's a grown man. He's been well-educated. He's described as powerful in speech and in action. We know at this point that Moses is aware of his calling. He knows that God wants to use him to rescue his people, and he wants his people to see him for who he actually is. But I'm not sure that Moses knows himself who he is yet. And I think we'll see that conflict flesh itself out in the following text. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. At this point in Moses' life, I think it's fair to say that he is feeling that feeling of, this place no longer feels like home to me. Something happens when slavery becomes a face and a name instead of a metaphor, right? He knows who he has been raised to be in his Egyptian home, but he also knows what God is calling him to do. He sees the faces of his people, and he feels the blood in his veins that tell him he is a Hebrew. And this prompts him to begin the journey from slavery to home externally by literally trying to free an oppressed fellow Hebrew. But I think we also see a flash of his internal journey here. This tension of Moses trying to figure out who he is. His own personal journey from bondage to freedom is bubbling over in this instance, and it gets the best of him, and he kills someone. He foolishly thinks, I'll hide this body in the sand, and that will be the end of that ugly outburst. But word spreads about this murder, and he's questioned the next day by his own people, who seem less than impressed, by the way. And Moses is afraid, and he should be, because by now Pharaoh knows and is out to get him. So Moses is on the run. 
He knows that God has asked him to lead his people to freedom, but he's got to be wrestling with some serious doubt at this point. He's got to be thinking, maybe I've blown it. I've killed an Egyptian to save a Hebrew. I thought I was doing the right thing. In that moment, I felt like I was doing what I should do. But now Pharaoh is out to kill me. I'm definitely no longer Egyptian. But will my own people accept me as a Hebrew? I am one of them, aren't I? Aren't I? Does that wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Can't we relate to this struggle Moses is having internally? This internal battle of who we think we know ourselves to be and who God is saying we are. I really wrestled with this internally a few years ago um, when Jonathan approached me and asked me to become a pastor here at Pulpit Rock. I actually still wrestle with it sometimes. <laughs> I'd been on staff a few years already. I was working with the youth group. I loved what I did. I love the people I get to work with here. But I was not interested in becoming a pastor. Don't you get some pushback for letting a woman have that role anyway? I was thinking, I've got a lot of baggage with church. Religion has kind of beat me down, and it's beat down people I care about. And I know we don't do that at Pulpit Rock, but that title is just so formal, and everyone will expect things of me, and it's definitely going to ruin my social life. <laughs> Would anyone even accept me as a leader? I had doubts. I had burned bridges. I had a baggage that I was lugging around. Would that wash out in the water? Or is it always in my blood? We continue reading about Moses' journey in verses 16 and 17. Moses has fled to Midian, where one day he's sitting by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Hey, can I just ask, what, what is Moses' deal? Why does he keep doing this? He just keeps getting involved in other people's battles. Because it's in his blood. He's a freedom fighter. He knows it, and he can't turn away from someone being oppressed. This is who God made him to be. And he's probably still wrestling with this truth and tension, but he's getting closer to figuring it out. The glimpse we saw when Moses killed the Egyptian seemed to be his internal battle getting the best of him and bubbling out externally. Getting involved and ultimately killing that man was his first instinct. And we all know if we've lived any life at all that our first instincts don't always serve us well. But God keeps working in us, thankfully. He doesn't give up on us. So Moses has run off into the desert fighting this internal battle for freedom, and he just can't help having another go at it. And it actually serves him well this time. I think the scene that we see here at this well, when Moses intervenes on behalf of these sisters, is the glimpse of himself that Moses needed to see. A foreshadowing of the man God was still asking him to be, despite his past. Does that wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Do you see yourselves in this story yet? Is there a specific brokenness in our world that you just can't turn away from? Is there a scenario where you just always find yourself getting involved? Has God been trying to tell you who you are? 
Maybe your past has been talking too. Have you run off to the desert because this internal journey to freedom is just too painful? It's too long a road. Does that wash out in the water? Or is it always in your blood? Three years ago, almost to the date, I was personally still wrestling with taking on the whole pastor title, and I'd asked for some time just to think about it. I think I'd run off into the desert a little bit. I was beginning to hear God kind of wooing me back when I got the phone call from Oklahoma. That I'll be honest, I had played this phone call out in my mind many times. My dear friend Joni had called to tell me the latest about our friend Lauren. And uh, Joni and I, we would try to circle up around Lauren. We'd try to support her any way we could. And a phone call from Joni to give me the latest when Lauren wasn't returning my calls was the norm for us. But this phone call was different. Joni told me that Lauren was gone. She'd been in jail, and it wasn't the first time. But this was the first time that hopelessness overwhelmed her heart and her mind. She scratched her final thoughts into the wall of her jail cell where she was physically locked up. Black letters on a white wall, a black on white message. Evidence of the internal fight for freedom she had been fighting for so long before she took her life into her own hands. The next day I went back to my hometown back to my home church, and I buried the longest friendship I had known in my life. And I knew in that moment, that feeling, this place no longer feels like home to me. I was sitting around a campfire with my high school friends at the end of that awful day when I got a video texted to me. The video showed the inside of this room, but it was raining inside, like a torrential downpour inside this room. And as I tried to wrap my mind around what was happening, more texts came through to clarify what was actually going on. Our roof was in the middle of being replaced, and we had one of those monsoon rains that we get. What started out as drips and leaks and puddles of water quickly turned into rushing and flooding and complete destruction of this room. We now endearingly refer to this incident as the flood. As I sat there in the backwoods of Oklahoma, watching this building flood and ultimately be destroyed, I had a very strange sense of peace. I was stuck to my phone, and a friend finally asked, you know, what's going on? And I kid you not that the words that came out of my mouth were, God is doing something. God kept doing something in my heart that night. He kept speaking to me. He said, why are you fighting me on this pastor thing? This is your church. I want to use you here. Look around you. You've been a pastor all your life. You've always run from the 99 to the fringe to find the one who is hurting. You do that because that's who I made you to be. You're a shepherd. This is who you are. Does that wash out in the, in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Like Moses at the well that day, I think this was the glimpse of myself that I needed to see. I had to go back to my roots to reconnect to it. I had to face all the should-haves and shouldn't-haves. And if suicide has touched your life, you know how especially haunting those thoughts can be. 
I had to face all the first instincts I've acted on that probably didn't serve anyone well. I had to let God wash some things out in the water before I could believe what was in my blood. It was my baptism of sorts. Sometimes it takes running off into the desert to get to that point. Sometimes it takes feeling your heartbreak. Sometimes it takes pain. But pain in the hands of God has a beautifully redemptive effect. After Moses came to the aid of the priest of Midian's daughters at that desert well, the priest took him in. Moses was given one of the priest's daughters, Zipporah, as a wife, and they lived there with her family happily for a long time. Though I think it's fair to say Moses was still a little dodgy with God. You know how we can be. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites continued to groan in their slavery, and the Bible says that their cries went up to God. What happens next is what we'll get into next week. When God appears to Moses and says, it's time. But there was a process Moses had to go through before he was ready to respond to God and ready to believe he was who God was saying he was. Through that process, God had gotten Moses out of Egypt and he had gotten Egypt out of Moses. Several weeks after this room flooded, uh, we had begun the repairing process. The place had been gutted and every wall and ceiling covered with brand new white sheetrock. While we were having church over in the student center, Luke had this beautiful idea to let church members in uh, to write messages, prayers, and scriptures on all this white sheetrock. We kept baskets of black sharpies at the door and anyone who wanted to was invited to come in, write their message. Uh, Molly even brought the kids' classes down so the kids could write something. It was a cool way for us to all be a part of this beautiful thing that God was doing here. I wrote a prayer about my friend Lauren. It's on the floor down here somewhere underneath this carpet. I'll never forget the Monday morning, but our staff came down here during our staff meeting. We were about to move into the next phase of the project, and uh, before like carpet and paint and light started going in, we just wanted to thank God for what he had done, pray over the space. And with the black on white hopeless message that my best friend left on her cell wall moments before she died, still deeply burned into my memory, I was overcome to walk into this sanctuary and see hundreds of black on white messages written all over the walls and the floor. Messages of hope, God's promises, reminders of who we are, God's people, reminders of who our God is, one who proclaims good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the prisoners. Does that wash out in the water, or is it always in the blood? The story of slavery runs through the heart of each of us. The storyline of Exodus is our story, both as individuals and as a community. It's not true because it happened. It's true because it's happening. It doesn't wash out in the water. It's in our blood. We can fight that external slavery that exists physically around us. 
Maybe we don't face that type of slavery personally, but we can fight for those who do. We can support efforts like the Exodus Road. I've been with the Exodus Road. I've walked with them down into those cracks of the earth. I've sat with those girls. I've looked in their eyes. That is a fight we cannot turn away from. And we cannot turn away from our own fight either. This internal battle against the things that enslave us, that lock us up. We as a people weren't born in Egypt, but we were born with Egypt in our hearts. Can we begin the hard work of letting God wash out in the water what needs to go? So that message of slavery and bondage that speaks loudest when we have forgotten who we are can be replaced with the message of freedom and hope and remind us whose blood runs through our veins. Can you hear God telling you who you are? Is he showing you what needs to just be washed out in the water? Is he reminding you of what's in your blood and what will always be in your blood? Because he put it there. Have you found yourself in these stories today? Do you know who you are? You bear the image of God. Does that wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? We want to give you just a few moments to just engage with these thoughts, um, engage with this song specifically, and then Jillian's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. of my mother has my mother left in me how much of my love will be insane to some degree and what about this feeling that i'm never good enough will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood of my father am I destined to become will I dim the lights inside me just to satisfy someone will I let this woman kill me or do away with jealous love will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood I can't feel the love I Like my brothers, do my brothers wanna be? Does a broken home become another broken family? Or will we be there for each other like nobody ever could? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? I can't feel the love I want. 